The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. It should be all right, please. Be with Shirley and all the congregation here, and be with people all over. And on St. Sunday day, and bless this sermon in Jesus' name. Amen. It's um, in Revelations 21 on 1937 in your pew Bibles. It'll be from 1 to 6, then 21 to, to 2 5, 22 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man. He'll be live with, he'll be, he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Who has, who, he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To whom is thirsty, I will give drink, without cost, from the spring of the water. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great city of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are his temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamp is in light in his lamp. The nations will walk by his light and the kings of the earth will bring the splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut, for there'll be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angels showed me the river of the water, and its life is clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great city, street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding it fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are of healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb of God in the city, 
and his servants his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their forehead. There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give from light and they'll reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Betty, for reading for us. Um, I don't think I've ever asked this before, but would someone be willing to get me a cup of water? My voice will not... Oh, so many people. Thank you. So what we believe about the future has a direct impact on how we act in the present. I'll say that again, because it's kind of the theme of this year. What we believe about the future has a direct impact on how we live our lives in the present. So a few years ago, I read a story in Time magazine about a group of people who were living in Aleppo in Syria. And it's a city that's been the subject to a lot of terror over the past few years. There's uh, been a lot of political unrest in the city, and there's rebel forces that have been trying to overthrow the, the dictator, Bashar al-Assad. Now, this is back in 2017 when this, this happened. Um, who's, his response to the... Thanks, Owen. His response to the... Um, to the opposition from the rebels has been to actually bomb the city with airstrikes. And so day after day, these bombs have been going off and, and the dominant fear among just the, the civil uh, people, the, the civilians in Aleppo is that they're going to be buried alive because these bombs are sporadic and they're consistent and, and that's, that's a, that, that lives with these people. Time did, a, did an article on a subgroup of volunteer men and women called the Syrian Civil Defense. These are people just like us, um, citizens of Aleppo, who have dedicated their lives. They've dedicated their lives to, um, to responding to these bombs. And the way that they do that is when, when a bomb goes off, instead of following the natural... Uh, human tendency is to, when there's an explosion, to run away from it in the opposite direction. These people run towards it. And they begin to uncover uh, the rubble and, and, and try to save as many people from, from these buildings as they possibly can. The, the thing is, though, and Time magazine called this the most dangerous job in the world, is because when there's one bomb that goes off, oftentimes there's another that follows it. And so these people are putting themselves in immense amounts of danger to try to save some of their fellow citizens. And a lot of us would ask this question, why? Right? What makes someone uh, have the courage to run towards the, the sound of a bomb instead of running away from it? And I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning. Their desire for the future of their people, of their city, of their nation changes how they're responding to the present situation. They hate what the bombs are doing. And so they're doing everything that they can 
in the moment to fight against that and save people. This is a human thing, right? This is what the Bible is telling us, actually. The book of Revelation is a book that's, that was written uh, by a guy named John. And it, it was written so that people who were living, Christians who were living in uh, the Roman world, who were experiencing persecution, would have courage to dig into Jesus instead of running the opposite direction. Okay, it was written, it was a heavenly perspective on things so that the present day could be viewed in light of the final outcome, right? The final outcome. In other words, Revelation gave those people confidence to live in the tension of their world. What about us? What about our tension? What about the tensions that we experience each and every single day? What about the mental and physical illnesses that plague us? Right? We, we know that this is, this is true. We see it all around us. The statistics are, are, are so um, telling of the tension of mental health in the 21st century. What about addictions? Many of us experience addictions. Different kinds of addictions. We, we, we have addictive personalities. What about family dynamics that cause tension? Marriage challenges. Right? We live in the midst of these, these tensions and, and we struggle with, do we, how do we get the courage to dig in and not run away? So we need revelation just as much as, as um, the people who John is writing to. Uh, we need it because what we believe about the future changes how we live in the present moment. And so as we conclude our series on the new heaven and the new earth, or the heaven, um, we're looking at this, this famous passage in Revelation, and we're going to ask three questions. You know, what is, what is this final outcome that John's talking about? Um, why do we need to think about it? And how does it give us confidence today? Why do we need to think about it? And how can it give us confidence today? So what is it? This text, um, as, for me as a pastor, uh, at, what, one of the first things that I do when I approach a text, after I pray, is I make a list of all the questions that I have. And uh, as, I, as I sat down last week and, and looked at this text for the first time, the list of questions was long and typical, right? Like that's, if you grew up in the church, you would recognize that Revelation is a, is a, is a book that's sometimes very difficult to understand. It's full of images that are, that are challenging for us with our Western glasses reading the text to see what it actually means. If you're new to the church, it probably is pretty cool. But as I was uh, putting down these questions and, and looking at and reading people who are way smarter than me and have way more experience looking at um, apocalyptic literature, which is what this revelation is, three things emerged that I want to share with you that I think are hugely important to how we live our lives today. What about it? Okay, so three important pieces are that God is making things right again, that it's everything we ever dreamed of, and that we play a big part in it. So what is the new heaven and the new earth? It is what God is doing. It is everything we've dreamed of, and we play a part in it too. So let's look at these three things. Um, so remember, this is a vision that John has given. And the text is full of the things like John saw, right, or heard, or did not see, 
Right? It's all him recounting uh, the, the, the vision, the revelation that God had given him. But what's so overwhelmingly crucial for us to see is that this is dominated by what Bible people call God-active language. So what do I mean by that? Well, imagine that uh, you're doing a group project at school. Right? You, most of the time you get like a piece of paper that has the assignment written on it or um, you know, if you're in university, there's like a lab, there's like a description that you have to do for the next three hours. And you're in a group with other people, and so you go around and you begin reading this through and trying to wrap your, your head around what is this project or this assignment asking us to do. And then it becomes clear, right, as you, as you start talking about it, that there's activities that each person in the group has to do in order to, to accomplish the project, right? Some, someone maybe has to put a PowerPoint presentation together. Someone has to do research, right? Someone has to um, write up a little blurb about this or that, right? These are activities that the group has to do. And what what I'm trying to get at is that everything new takes someone being active to bring it about. And so when we say this is God active language, what we're saying is God is doing the acting in this. If we look at the text, this is, um, and try to think in your head of all the things that God is doing. So John saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no mourning or death or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Then he goes on, and we get some insider information here. You know, we're VIPs in this experience, right? And, and um, he, it says that God, uh, God is making. God says, I am making everything new. This is God talking. The next verse, God says, it is finished. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the beginning of the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last. It's the beginning and the end. Right? To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the stream of life. Now, Now, how much of that is God doing? All of it. Right? The new heavens and the new earth is something that is, going, is not going to succeed and fail on our effort or watch. This is God-active language. Now, um, some of you may be thinking right away, okay, you know, Pastor Hayden, this whole time you've been saying that uh, heaven is not a place that we go and we die. It's this place renewed. And it But it looks more like when I read this text that there is going to be some passing away going on here. So how do we make sense of of the word new heaven and the new earth? Is it like a new in terms of time? And this was on my list of questions. But the Greek language has a qualitative distinction here. And I know that's a big word. But what it means is that um, kainos, which is the word for new, doesn't indicate new in terms of a start point. Like if you start a gym membership. It's a new gym membership. It, what, it, what it means is like, okay, so if you have a toy that ran out of batteries, right, and, and you give it to your dad, and you say, dad, I need new batteries in this toy. And he gets the batteries, and he puts it, and he gives it back, and he says, good as 
new, right? Is that toy new? Absolutely not. But it has a new quality to it, meaning it is renewed. It is made new. It is made like it was intended to be. This is the same thing that this Greek word is getting at. The new heaven and the new earth is a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And we see this in Jesus' resurrection, right? After he was uh, raised from the dead, he was different, wasn't he? But yet the same, but different, right? He ate, he drank, he talked, he probably laughed, but he walked through walls. Now, when was the last time you walked through a wall? Probably never, right? There is a renewed emphasis to, you may have tried to walk through a wall or a glass door. There's a renewed emphasis here on what God is doing. This is something that we all long for, this renewedness. Because it's the place where, where, where everything that we've dreamed of comes to be true. Now, good stories... If you think about a good story, it brings the plot in full circle, right? Um, I used a few weeks ago the, the illustration of a romantic comedy and about how they nail the plot every time. Every single tension in a romantic comedy is, is, is brought to complete peace at the end of it. Everything is sorted out. Everything is perfect, And why are these movies so popular? It's because it speaks to our deepest longings as human beings. I was reading a book recently called The Common Rule, and the guy was talking about how important stories are to us as people. We are a story culture. And he says there's three things that we look for and attach ourselves to in good stories. Beauty, justice, and community. Beauty, justice, and community. Beauty meaning beautiful people, beautiful aesthetics, beautiful character trait, beautiful imagery. Justice meaning people being treated as they should be treated. Those who uh, deserve good get good. Those who deserve bad get what's coming for them. Justice. Community, right? People coming together, people being united. Think of some of your, uh, your most favorite movies of all time. All of them probably have those three things. Star Wars has it. Lord of the Rings has it. Harry Potter has it. So many of the stories in our culture have these things. If we slow down and ask ourselves why, why do we desire beauty and why do we desire justice and why do we desire community, it's because we see these things in the Garden of Eden. Right? If you... In Genesis, um, it talks about how God made spring to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. This was a beautiful place that we were created to live in. And it was a place of justice and peace where everyone and everything was treated how it should be treated. Right? God looked at man and said, you should not be alone. So he created someone, a helper for him. And then when Adam saw that, he rejoiced, right? So there's there's justice and peace and it's community. God and human beings were in perfect relationship. Humans and animals live together in harmony. Now the new heavens, the renewed heavens, the renewed earth is a place where these desires are once again fulfilled. We see it in this passage, right? Look at the beauty. Now we didn't 
read the section that went into detail about the beauty, but if we did, it wouldn't make as much sense to us as it would to, to uh, a Jew who is reading this, who would say, that's the temple. The highest point of beauty in Jewish culture was the place where they worshipped God. And that's exactly what this new heaven and new earth is. It's a temple. The whole thing is a temple. It's beautiful. Now it also says there was no longer any sea. Now to us, we think, oh, does it just mean that there's all land? No, the, the sea was a place of chaos for Israel. It was unpredictable. It was... It was the home to creatures that they didn't know the names of. It was scary to go out onto the sea, and it was rough. Sea was chaos. If you look at the Gospels, every time that there's um, stories of bad, a lot of times when there's stories of bad things that happened, it's through being on the sea. Um, and now for us, too, in recent days, you know, with, sea is a place for chaos for us, too, right? There's a cruise ship that is full of people who are getting sick that's on sea, and now we associate that with chaos, the image of no sea means there's peace, shalom, justice. And also God's dwelling place is among his people. We see that also happening. There's a communal aspect. The nations are being gathered into the new heavens and the new earth. See, our deepest desires for beauty and justice and community are all satisfied in the new heaven and the new earth. And guess what? We play a part in this too. Verse 24 talks about how the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will be brought into the splendor. Will bring their splendor into it. And later in verse 26, it says that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. See, we are bringers of things into this place. What does this look like though? What role do we play? What does it mean to bring splendor into it? We often think of splendor as, you know, something physical, you know, uh, like a, a belonging or a possession or something. And so that can maybe cause some of us, myself included, to think, well, if it's about belongings that we bring in, I really don't bring a whole lot into this place. But that's not what this, this is saying. It's, it's actually talking about everything that we know of from being a part of something. Okay, so think of a club they are part of our team or uh, a group of, of, of people. Um, when, and I'm going to use the example of the Toronto Raptors for this because I haven't used the Raptors enough. And they're the only Toronto team that's really killing it right now. And so um, last year, the Raps got really um, criticized early on for making a trade, right? They, they, they moved Kawhi Leonard in, right? There was a, a person of who brought splendor into the new heavens and the new, I mean, the Toronto Raptors. And, um, and there were a lot of questions surrounding that, right? How will he fit in to what's already there, right? Because there's a group going on. What, what's, so what is Kawhi's splendor? And see, the, the Raptors really didn't want his style, right? They didn't even really want his skill, what they wanted more than anything else was his heart. Because if you don't have someone's heart, then you don't get their full skill. You don't get their buy-in. They're not going to do everything. Sacrifice their body for the good of the team. Right? 
And so a lot of people questioned, you know, does Kawhi really want to be here? Is he all in with this team? Because when his heart is there, then he is a better reflection of not the name on the back of the jersey, but the name on the front of the jersey, the Toronto Raptors and what they stand for. See, this is what John is talking about. When the nations walk by its light and the kings of earth bring their splendor into it, what he's saying is that the nations, which is us too, what God desires of the nations is to bring our wholeheartedness, our whole devotion to his glory. To be a complete reflection of what he stands for. Just as Kawhi was a, was a reflection of what the Raptors did for. Hard work, dedication, buying in night after night. And that's where he used his skill to the best. Now we may ask ourselves, what do we bring? We bring a lot. We've been created to bring a lot. What would it look like if we actually believed that God desires and longs for us to bring the gifts that he's given to us to his glory? This looks like, okay, what if we were to work and grow and develop and get better at things because we know that they actually have an eternal impact. See, the nation's bringing their splendor. These are things that they're already known for. Things that you're known for will have an impact in eternity, in pointing to the glory of God in and through you. This means that you're not just at school in school to graduate or to get a job or so that you can earn enough money to retire. What you're doing has an eternal impact. In the same way that, that when you're parenting kids, right, this, this is not something that is, you know, primarily for our joy. What we're doing is we're forming eternal souls by God's grace and a lot of grace. Eternal souls. This has eternal significance. Parenting has to have eternity in mind. What about your, your work, right, earning money? You're, you're not just, and you are, you're supporting a, a family, right? Or you're supporting yourself. Um, but you're also, you're making an eternal difference. The, the, what you earn and bring in allows some, a group of people to flourish, right? Um, you, you bring the gifts and talents that God has given you, and you can put them to work in whatever you're doing. See, I hope you're beginning to see a trend here. The new heaven and the new earth isn't about us. It's about God's glory. And we are invited to walk in its light and to participate in that. It's God active, right? It satisfies our deepest longings and desires. And we bring ourselves and the splendor that God has given to us into it. So why do we need to think about it? Because how we act in the present moment, is impacted by what we believe about in the future. And so what does it take to be, to have assurance and confidence in this vision of what's, what's next for us when Jesus Christ comes again and everything is made new? Well, verse 25 and 27 in this passage can confuse us a little bit because they can seem to be at odds with each other. 
Verse 25, if you look in your Bibles, makes it seem like everyone will, it will be always welcomed in this place. This is the gates, this, the gates of the city are always open. But then verse 27 maybe seems like it brings a different message. It says that, that nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. These two can sometimes be confusing and seem that they're opposites of each other. And I think that this, there's two different kinds of people that are seen in this passage through these two verses. The one t- person maybe irks more at verse 25 and says, the gates are always open? But, but living in the presence of God means we have to be pure, to be holy, and we have to work hard at that. Getting into this place is, is, is about pushing yourself to be a good moral person. There are no immoral people in the new heavens and the new earth. We, like to th- we, we do um, think like this and think that we can earn our way into this place more often than we'd like to admit. Paul re- reminds us, though, that in his letter to the Romans that all have sinned, Right? All are, are, have fallen short of God's glory. No one is righteous, not even one. And so um, often we do find ourselves digging into this pool that we can, you know, muster up all the good things that we do and then hand them to God and he will say, you know, good job. Right? Often we find ourselves digging into this pool or diving into this pool. Good questions to check the temperature on how we're trying to earn our righteousness go like this. You know, these are questions that I have found helpful in the past for myself. How do I face my deepest flaws? Can you? Can you name them? To God? What about other people? What about the things that you're least proud about? that you know are, are, are sinful in God's eyes, can you name those things? And if not, why not? We're free in Christ. Right? The guilt is gone. When we err on the side of works righteousness, it will be hard for us to name the, thing, the places where we fail. Legalism hates vulnerability, in other words. But the other flip side of that is people who irk at verse 27 and say, how exclusive? How can this be in the Bible? It's offensive that only the names of those who are written in the book of life can enter. And it's, how can that be? Look, earlier it says its gates will never be shut, right? They're always open, which means everyone can find a refuge in this place. God is a merciful God, right? He's a second chance God. Amen? But we also have to remember that the gates are not shut because there is no night there. Night is also chaos. Night is where dangerous things happen. And so cities would shut their gates at night to keep the people who shouldn't be in out. To protect the city against chaos and danger. About, uh, uh, to protect it from people who don't abide by its policies a.k.a. its law, God's law. Nothing impure will ever enter it because there will be no danger of it. See, if we err on the side of, of mercy and forget about justice, 
Well, then how can, can you ask yourself the question, how hard, if, if we find ourselves maybe doing this, checking our temperature with this question, you know, how hard are you trying to change to, to better reflect God's perfect glory? Or in other words, do you hate your sin? How much do you hate it? Or have you become a little bit complacent to it, leaning on the fact that God accepts you for who you are? See, see both, both of these temperature-gauging questions show something in us. And that is that we can't deal with our sin on our own, can we? We need help. We need the cross. Because the cross is where these two verses collide, where God's mercy and justice are satisfied in Jesus Christ. And this is where we get confidence and assurance to live today. God is a second chance God. He's full of mercy. His grace is unending. And he's committed to us. And he shows us this. How? By sending his only son to live the life that we should have and die the death we should have. To live the life we couldn't and die the death we should have. He earned for us a perfect moral record before God. And he went to the cross, right? A place where he he did not deserve to go. And, And on the cross, he let himself be cast out from the presence of God. He was crucified in the dark. In the chaos. He let himself be thrown into the darkness He cried out, I thirst, so that we could be invited in and satisfied. Jesus became us, crucified, died, and buried. But he wasn't us. And and the power of God at work in him raised him to life. And through him, God invites us to live eternally with him. This is why when we die, we are united with Christ. We go to be with him. Whatever that looks like, we don't know exactly, but we go to be with Jesus. But it's only when we see the beauty of the cross as the finished work of Jesus that we will really have confidence to live today in our personal tensions, in our worldly tensions, to fight against sin in ourselves, to fight against sin in our world, to enter into brokenness in ourselves, to enter into the brokenness in our world because Jesus Christ has already defeated death and he's made a way for us by grace to experience eternal life with him. God desires us to be a reflection of him. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. He's committed to us. Some of us need to sing this. Right? We need to sing with joy. Do you let God give you joy? Does that, does the thought that, that he has finished a work that you could not do, does that bring you joy? Some of us need to sing. Some of us need to confess. Bring things to the light so that they can be purified, so that we can be made to further reflect his glory and his perfection. 
Some of us need to give and offer more of ourselves. Right? The new heaven and the new earth is not a place where we go to celebrate us. It's where God is worshipped. Some of us need to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to stir us up and move us out of our complacency. The beauty of the cross is that through it our hearts are changed. And in this we can be like the white helmets, right? Where when the bomb goes off, we have the confidence to run towards, towards the injustice, towards the sin and the brokenness, to dig in and not away from it. Because what we believe about the future changes how we live in the present. And our God is making everything new. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the confidence that you give to us through this revelation, the inside look into what our future will be like, to give us the confidence and the hope to live today, to dig in today, and to be changed today, to look more like you. Father, give us your spirit to see clearly the hope that this is for us, for our world, to, um, to live into it. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.